Hi, I'm Ryan Becker, and you're listening to the Rock Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church Official Sermon Archive. You can find more information about our church at www.rockhillsdachurch.org. We hope by listening to this message that you are encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ. When I was in third grade, I had a friend of mine that I had met in my neighborhood, and he and I would hang out every day after school. We'd hang out every weekend. We'd hang out all the time that I wasn't doing school stuff or family stuff, and same with him. Now, his parents were a little um, distant. They weren't negligent. They were just busy a lot, So he and he was an only child. So he and I would spend a lot of time together because he had a lot of free time, and my brother and older sister were too cool for me. So I also had a lot of free time. But unfortunately, because of the environment that he grew up in, and because he grew up in a, in a space where uh, he wasn't watched very carefully, he wasn't taught a whole lot of things, he was exposed to things without any sort of um, real parental guidance on some occasions. And because I spent so much time with him, I was also exposed to some of those things. And so it was in third grade, sitting in my um, sitting in my house with him, that it was my first exposure to pornography. And if you are eight years old, in third grade, you have no idea what you're actually being exposed to. And what you know is that, well, this feels good, this seems like something that I enjoy, this seems like something that I like, so... There's nothing wrong with it. Because when you're a kid, all that matters is that it feels good and makes you happy. And so what would happen is this would be a pattern of something that I would hide from my parents. I didn't want them to know about it, obviously. So there was enough in me that knew this was something that I didn't want my parents to know I was looking at. But I would find ways around my dad's filters and web filters, or I'd find ways to look at this, and this would turn into what would become a full-blown pornography addiction uh, by the time I was in eighth grade. Now, it wasn't until about eighth grade that I realized, actually, it wasn't really until about freshman, sophomore year of high school, that I realized that it was an actual addiction and not just something I did. Because, now, I tend to be a little bit more oblivious than some. When something goes wrong, I tend to just be like, oh, maybe this is a problem. And I don't notice it until often it's too late. But with addictions, they often take hold, even if to the most vigilant people, they often take hold before you even know it. There was a story of a man uh, I just read recently who, um, for the first time in his life, had tried heroin. Just on a whim, he was walking and and a guy offered it to him and he took it. And he said it was the greatest experience he had ever had, but he said, I was only gonna do it that once. It's never gonna do it again. I'm in control of my life, and all you people, and and people would flood the story with comments saying, be careful, you need to get help, do not fall into this. And he's like, no, I'm strong, I won't fall into it, it's fine. Two weeks later, he shows back up online saying that not a day has gone by that he has not shot up. Addictions take hold quickly, and they do not let go. So it wasn't until freshman, sophomore year of high school, 15, 16 years old, that I'm realizing that this is a problem that I cannot face. And I'd been caught a couple times by my parents who would only tell me, no, don't look at that. But no actual help in feeding it. 
because they did not know that I had been caught in this for years. They did not see what had been festering for years. They only saw the one moment and had assumed that was the first moment. And so they told me, no, don't look at that. They thought they were catching the addiction at the beginning. Turns out they were catching it long too late. And I began to feel this inner sense of, um, of pain, of heartache, of worthlessness, and of weakness because I could not figure out how to beat this. Because my parents had told me, no, don't do this, then I felt no sort of motivation, no sort of, no sort of safety or comfort to go to them and tell them that I'm still dealing with this. Because I figured that because they had told me, no, don't do this anymore, I would be faced with discipline, and I didn't want to be disciplined. Lord knows I was beating myself up enough, and so I didn't tell them. Now, my generation came up with, uh, was the advent of MySpace and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And what my generation started to do was instead of talking with their parents, and instead of talking with their friends, we would share online, either anonymously or through veiled posts. And you can see this even now, that people will share and they'll say something really vague. And this happens all the time. Someone will say something really kind of worrying online. They'll say something like, I've had a terrible day, or um, something has gone horribly wrong, or they'll say some sort of very vague quote somewhat indicating that something is wrong. And when you comment and you say, hey, is everything okay? Do you want to talk about it? They say, no, I don't want to talk about it. In reality, they do. They just don't want to over the comments. What ended up happening was my addiction started spilling over into my social media posts, and it became this thing where I would vaguely talk about this struggle that I had, but I wouldn't ever outright address it. One day... I went into work, and my boss, at my first job ever, it was an IT job at my high school. My boss was friends with me on Facebook. He was kind of a, he still is, stern, stoic, cynical, sarcastic man. Hilarious, but um, ruthless if you are, um, if you mess up, because he wants you to do well. He doesn't have a whole ton of patience. Which means that if you want to come to him with a problem, and I remember this very, very vividly, if there were times that I, I was messing up with my job or couldn't figure something out, I would be scared to call him. Because if he showed up and took care of it in under 30 seconds, I knew he was going to be mad at me for wasting his time. And so I always prayed, literally I would pray, Lord, I'm calling my boss, please make this be a problem that takes like a week to solve. So that he says, I'm glad you called me, you were right, you couldn't figure this out. And one morning he says, Ryan, hey, hop in the golf cart with me. We're going to go work on something um, behind the gym. And I was like, okay, cool, where some, of the, where some of the cables were. I said, all right, that's fine. Hopped in, it's 8 a.m., and he takes me behind the gym into a parking lot, and he stops um, in the parking lot, so away from the gym, so I know we're not going in anymore, but I'm confused. And he says, he looks at me, and he says, Ryan, what is going on? You've been posting on Facebook all this stuff, and you won't talk about it. What's wrong? And for the first time, I talked with someone about what was going on. And while this addiction I would suffer from for years even after this moment, this was the first time that someone identified the problem and reached out to help me. 
He introduced me to the idea of accountability. In fact, he was my first accountability partner when it came to it. He promised not to report it to anyone or to talk to anyone because obviously if you go to an Adventist academy, pornography is a big no-no. I mean, it's a big no-no everywhere, but um, it is grounds for discipline. Um, but he knew that I, this wasn't something I was doing out of defiance. This isn't something that I was doing out of anger or rebelliousness. This was something that um, I was deeply struggling with, and I had confessed it to him. So he helped me. And he stuck with me, and the man with no patience ended up being one of the most patient with me and got me on the road to recovery. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus has just um, healed a man with a demon. And as he returns to town, I'm going to pick up in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to Jairus' house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So Jesus has just been given a task, and he agrees to go to Jairus' house. And continuing in verse 42, as Jesus went... The people pressed in around him. Jesus is a celebrity. He's a celebrity almost everywhere he goes because he does things a little bit differently from everyone else. And as he's walking, verse 43, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. I'm going to pause there and I want you to understand exactly what's happening here. Um, because there is a very, very big Old Testament connection with her struggle. Leviticus 15, we're not going to turn there, but in, you can if you want. Leviticus 15 is the chapter of the Old Testament law that talks about bodily discharge. And it talks about what makes someone unclean. Basically, any sort of fluid that you discharge would make you unclean. But there's different sections in that chapter for different types. And in verses 25 to 30 of that chapter, it covers what happens um, to a woman who is bleeding outside of her menstrual cycle. It says that she is unclean all the days that she is bleeding. And it says that everything that she touches, sits on, and wears is also unclean. And if something is unclean, this is what it means. It means you don't touch it. It means you don't go near it. And usually, and this was in the case of people with leprosy or some terminal diseases that actually left them physically disfigured or marred, people would view you as cursed by God. In other words, this wasn't just, I'm not going to touch you because you're unclean. I'm gonna, not going to touch you because I don't want the curse that you have. I don't even want to associate with you because clearly you've been abandoned by God. This is what the uncleanliness law would turn into as people would try to follow it. Obviously, this is not the intent of that law. If someone touches anything that she has, they are also unclean until, the, they, until that same evening. And after seven days that the discharge ends, on the eighth day, she would go to the priest with two turtle doves and two pigeons, and the priest would make atonement on behalf of her sins, and she would be declared so if you bled for 12 years, that means no one will touch you 
No one will go near you. People will stop associating with you. It is likely that if you worked in this society, not so much in her case, but if you worked, you weren't working anymore because anything you touch becomes unclean. And most, uh, most professions were either food-related, construction-related, or clothing-related. All three of those things you're coming in regular physical contact with and you don't want to eat something, touch something, or be in something that is unclean. So for 12 years, this woman is not touched, not hugged, no handshakes. People, when they see her sitting on the street corner, they'll walk around her instead of just in front of her. They won't say hi. And when you've been struggling for 12 years, not just a week, not just a month, then yes, absolutely, there are people that would say, you have been cursed by God, and I want nothing to do with you. So this woman has faced rejection, depression, and loneliness for 12 years. And because she's spent all of her living on physicians and no one's been able to help, person after person has turned her away, unable to fix her problem. She's now given up, basically, any sort of hope. But she's heard of this Jesus fellow who seems to do all these miracles. He seems to heal people who are sick or disfigured. He seems to take care of people. He seems to teach things differently than others do. And I've never heard of a man who does these things. Maybe he's different from everyone else. So she probably thinks to herself one more time, I will give this one more go. Verse 44, she came up behind him, behind Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. In other words, a ton of people are touching you. What do you mean, who touched me? Everyone did. Don't be ridiculous. I love this idea that, that his disciples talk to Jesus like he's being ridiculous. I just love that idea of like, God, are you serious right now? Is this really what we're doing? Okay, fine. Jesus said, verse 46, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. What we just read is an interruption in Scripture. See, Jesus had already been given a task to go to heal someone's daughter who is dying. This isn't like, oh, hey, come over next Tuesday for lunch. This is, this is an emergency, and we need you now. And Jesus gets interrupted. And he doesn't say, oh, we'll deal with this later. He stops and he addresses the interruption when it happens. And this is very key for what we're going to be talking about just a little later. And what I love about this moment, when she reaches out and she touches the fringe of his garment, think about what she has to do in relation to the laws of cleanliness. You can't touch her and she can't touch you. How does she get to Jesus through that entire crowd without touching anyone? She doesn't. In fact, the, the kind of 
insinuation here is that she actually crawled towards Jesus, trying to get through everyone's feet, trying her best not to touch anyone. But chances are, on her way to Jesus, some people were made unclean. And when she reaches out to touch Jesus, remember this law, what does that mean for Jesus? Jesus. He is unclean. And he doesn't turn around and say, how dare you? He doesn't turn around and say, you broke the law. Instead, he gives her a chance to speak for herself. This woman, for 12 years, has not had any, has, no one's given her the chance to speak. No one's given her the time of day, and no one's, no one's provided any sort of hope or care for her. And so she's stuck in this endless cycle. And what happens when you are rejected person after person after person? You start to believe that you will never be loved. You start to believe that there's nothing for you and that this is now your new normal. This is your life and no one will care for you. This is shame. This woman is dealing with shame. You see, shame exists when someone accepts standards for themselves that someone else has set for them, and they realize that they cannot meet them. Shame also exists when you set a standard for yourself that you cannot meet. And when you can't meet it, you beat yourself up and you say, come on, I, I thought I could do better. Maybe this is the best I can do. And when you're told year after year, day after day, month after month, week after week, I'm not going to touch you. You are unclean. You are unclean. You begin to believe that you are actually unclean. When I say standards, I don't mean this high list of things you need to achieve. I mean the standard that people simply put on you. And the standard that people had put on this woman, the standard that she saw when she looked at the way that the law was being fulfilled in her life, was I am unclean and I will never be made clean. This is shame. When people feel shame, they hide, much like I did. They begin to believe that even earnestly reaching out for love and for healing is inappropriate or reserved for those that are better than them. This is where you get the attitude that says, I need to clean myself up before I go to church or before I go to God. Because you believe that there's not enough value or there's not enough goodness in you that God would want anything to do with you. And ironically, it is the height of pride to say that God can't help you. That somehow you are, uh, that God isn't powerful enough. That what you've done is actually stronger than God's ability to forgive. But we don't see it that way, and I understand why. And I'm not saying that in order to, um, to call you out or to make you feel bad. My point is, when we are dealing with shame, we don't believe that we deserve love that we deserve forgiveness or deserve another chance. So for shame to be defeated, for shame to be addressed and fixed, two things have to happen. Number one, the shame must be directly addressed. In other words, you must shine a light on it. And I don't mean a light that says we're going to broadcast what's happened to the entire world. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when shame is directly addressed, it means that we confess what is going on, which implies 
that there is an environment safe enough for someone to confess and share what they are dealing with. And number two, value must be restored. You see, the root of shame it starts from Genesis 3 where we fell and are sinful. But our value is not in Genesis 3. Our value as human beings and as creations of God is in Genesis 1 where God creates everything and says it is good. Fundamentally, we were all made with this value and God has created creator's rights and if he says, I love you and you are important to me, guess what? You are. You absolutely are. And there's nothing you can do, say, question, scream out, cry out, fight to change it. You can't. And so when we are dealing with shame, when we're dealing with someone who's caught in this Genesis 3 mindset of I am sinful and I am fallen, and they may not ever directly express those words, then we must restore them to a place of Genesis 1 that says you've been created with value and you matter. The two things, shame must be directly addressed, it must be called out of the shadows, and value must be restored. Because shame exists in darkness, it takes someone willing to enter that darkness and cast a light into it. Do you ever wonder why Jesus says that we are a light in a city on a hilltop? Darkness is everywhere, and when light enters into it, darkness is cast out. Shame is absolutely conquered by love because true love restores value and does not let things exist in darkness. And it takes a love of radical acceptance and sacrifice to end shame. See, if anyone touches that woman and anything she touches becomes unclean, that means that Jesus becomes unclean. And how does he react to someone making him unclean? How does he react to someone interrupting him? What I love is that he doesn't react to either of those things because ultimately he doesn't care about either of those things. He does not care about being interrupted and he does not care in that moment about being made unclean by someone else who is struggling. Jesus was willing and happy to be made unclean in order to make this person clean. And there's, there's a part of this law that we often miss, because we never go back and read it, that I find really interesting. And it's in Leviticus 15, verses 26 and 27. And it says this, Every bed on which the woman lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she, she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. But listen to this in verse 27. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until when? Until the evening. In the very law that was meant to keep us healthy, to prevent the spread of disease and to um, provide a way of, of containing infection, God has built in an element of care. And he says, if you enter into someone else's uncleanliness, guess what? You're going to be made unclean as well, but only until the evening. You do not have to suffer the same thing that they are suffering. 
You do not have to go down so far into their level that you don't come back out. You are only made clean, unclean until the evening. God has provided a way of care for those who are struggling. And Jesus is willing to face that head on. You see, the second one person backs out of helping this woman, she begins to feel a little unloved and a little hopeless. Then another person backs out and says, I can't do anything for you. And that hopelessness grows. And that love gets shallower and shallower and doesn't reach as far as it used to. And by the time you've gone to every physician you know, by the time you've gone to every friend you know, all that love is gone. All that hope is gone. And you are stuck. And Jesus was willing to enter into that darkness and that hopelessness, even at the cost of an interruption. In fact, Jairus' daughter would end up dying because of the extra time that Jesus took. Now, if you continue to read this story, Jesus makes it and brings her right back. In other words, Jesus is willing to be interrupted because he knows in the end everything will be fine. From Jesus, we learn the attitudes of dealing with shame. They are being willing to be inconvenienced. They are being willing to be interrupted. That is the first attitude. And the second attitude is for us to be willing to get a little messy. Because there is no world in which shame is not messy and ugly. And as we enter into this attitude, into these attitudes, here's what I want to say. We have policies for when people are caught in sin. We have instruction for when people are caught in sin. But notice the word I've used, caught. We use discipline when someone is caught in sin, when someone is caught doing something wrong. But when someone comes to you and confesses something, the act of confession is by its own nature an act of bravery and courage. And it, with its with its vocalization, with the sharing of what's been going on, it is a clear indication that that person has been wrestling with this for an untold amount of time. And it means that when someone is going to confess to you that they've done something wrong or that they're fighting with something or they're struggling something, it is twofold. One, it is a cry for help. And two, it means they trust you. They feel safe enough to talk to you about what's going on. And the way you respond means everything. Chances are, when someone confesses something to you, they've already beaten themselves up enough about it. Chances are, they've watched all the YouTube videos in the world, all the sermons in the world, dealing with what they're dealing with. And chances are, they're beginning to feel like there's no hope for them. And when they share it with you, what they're saying is, please give me some hope. Because I've run out of it. And if you meet that, if you meet that hopelessness and that darkness with, how dare you? You've clearly done this terrible thing and you must be punished for it. Then you are only adding to the darkness in their life. See, policy gives us all the deep tools in the world to deal with someone who's caught in something. But when it comes to shame, that someone has been experiencing for years, months, weeks, it doesn't matter. Chances are that was punishment enough and they're ready to get out of it. And it is our job 
to be that representation of God's love, to demonstrate that love for them, and to help them out of that darkness. Absolutely. So I want to give you four things that Jesus does in this story of how we can enter into someone's shame and help to pull them out. The first thing that Jesus does is he identifies the hurting person. When he is walking and she touches his garment, he stops and he says, who touched me because I felt power go from me? Why would power leave you unless there was something to be fixed if you're Jesus? So he first of all identifies the hurting person. The second thing he does is he patiently, the key word here is patiently. And this next step permeates the entire process. He patiently pursues. He is adamant to find out who touched him. And he is actively looking for her. But the key word is patiently. You see, once we've identified someone who is hurting, once we've identified that there's a problem, we often want to go to them and say, hey, talk to me. Hey, you can talk to me. It's fine. Talk to me. And they say, I don't, I'm not ready to talk right now. And you say, come on, just talk to me now. Don't make someone else's shame about your impatience. They will often talk when they're ready. And maybe they need to see that someone is really willing to wait this out with them. So the key to pursuing someone is to be patient and to be on their schedule. He patiently pursues. The third thing that Jesus does, and remember this woman, by making him unclean, by, by doing what she has done, is technically engaged in um, spreading sin, right? Which means that if she's done that and Jesus is catching her in this act, then he should be admonishing her and telling her that this was wrong. This is not how we do things. Instead, what Jesus does, and this is step number three, is he listens. It says in verse 47, And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. It does not say there was a dialogue. It doesn't say there was a conversation. Jesus simply listened, and so did the crowd. This was not the time for admonishment. This was not the time for rejection. This was not the time for discipline. This was the time to listen to her story and accept whatever came. And I don't mean accept like, oh, okay, cool. We can just go on with our day. I mean accept as in, wow, that's tough, and I'm really sorry. He doesn't tell her that she's imperfect. He doesn't blow it out. He doesn't tell her that she's blowing it out of proportion. He listens and accepts. And the last thing that he does, and this for us, when someone is trapped in shame, this for us can be a process that takes years. The fourth thing that he does is he encourages her. His response when she shares her story in verse 48, and Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He does not tell her, Hey, you're going to be unclean for seven more days. You better wait this out. 
He doesn't say that there's going to be any reprimanding for anything that's happened. He simply says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. In other words, it's going to be okay. Starting right now, we're going to get through this, and it's going to be okay. This is your new start. For us, when we are dealing with someone who is trapped and caught in shame, it means that we wait it out with them, and we encourage them every step of the way, every day, every night. I had a policy. I don't do this very often. There's only about three or four people that I allow to do this to me because I just don't have the energy to do it for everyone. But occasionally when I've worked with youth at different places, I actually just did it back at prayer conference. If I meet a student who seems to be struggling with something especially difficult, I'll give them my telephone number. And I'll say, at any point of the day, morning, afternoon, evening, 4 a.m., 3 a.m., I don't care. You text me if you need prayer. And you don't need to tell me what's going on. You don't need to tell me anything content-wise. You can send me a space. You can send me a period. You can send me a whole bunch of gibberish. I don't care. Just send me a text, and I will stop whatever I'm doing, and I will pray for you. And there was one girl that really took that to heart. And I watched over the next month as my phone was flooded with those text messages because she was dealing with so much and had nowhere else to turn. We can talk about Daniel. We can talk about Revelation. We can talk about the 2300 days. We can talk about all these different doctrines and policies. And we can talk about all these theologies and we can, we can, we can dive into so, many, so much depth. But to someone who's caught in shame, the first thing that they need is to know that they are valued and that they are loved. That is where the gospel starts. Ultimately, helping, through, helping someone through shame is the exact work and message of the gospel. Listen, when sin entered the world, God identified the hurting people, us. He patiently pursued us even unto the cross. He was willing to get messy and he was willing to die to bear our sins. He quite literally entered our shame and didn't let it stop him. Hebrews 12, 2 says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And Jesus continually listens to our prayers. He listens to our deep cries and our celebrations. He listens to everything. And he hears it and he answers. And finally, he encourages us. He reminds us that he is coming again. He shows us that he has not given up on us and he comforts us. He sticks with us every step of the way. And Revelation serves as this comfort and reminder. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is our hope. And my call 
to you this morning is to enter into that darkness and show that same love and that same hope to someone who really needs it.